Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1294, The End and the Beginning, Part 1. This is being recorded on March 31st of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the program, first of all, do check the links uh, that are provided by the comments by the brilliant Terrafractal, our contributing editor, and other people as well. They no longer feed uh, uh, the RSS link. is uh, Apparently, it, it doesn't work. going to get that fixed in time. But please check the SpitfireList.com website to get updated on the various comments that the brilliant Terrafractal is providing. For those of you who find that podcasting is the best way to consume for the record, sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record, and there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post that you can click on in order to subscribe to the podcast. And also, everything that I've done since 1979, all of my printed and audio material, plus a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files are available on a 32-gigabyte flash drive, which will be updated uh, after this series is complete. And again, it may not seem very politic, but I don't think we're going to make it. And I think people have an obligation to preserve the record of what has happened for uh, those future generations should they basically survive. Again, that doesn't sound very optimistic. You know, let's just say they don't call me good time, Dave Emery, for nothing. But uh, the uh, thrust of this program, this series, it's probably not going to work. In fact, it may suck altogether. I don't know. But um, we will see. I was talking with a trusted associate, and he advised me that when I talk about are being doomed, which I think we are, it turns people off because they just can't handle it. And I fully understand that. And I was trying to emphasize that this guy has kids. You know, I said, your children are doomed, you know. And he said, well, that sounds like you're being manipulative, which, again, I can understand. The problem is it presents me with a dilemma. Do I tell the truth as best I can present it and understand it, or do I want to be politic? Do I just want to curry favor. The way to be popular is to curry favor. That is not what I'm all about here. So it is a dilemma. And what I'm going to do in this series and the 32 gigabyte flash drive will be updated as soon as I complete this. And by the way, I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. Uh, It is proof positive, I suppose, that I might be seen as just as crazy as my worst critics contend in that I get no no money from my life's work. But uh, what the heck, that is how it goes. Uh, again, I, I don't think we're going to make it. And what I'm going to do in this series as best I can is to present some of the reasons why, but also to present one of the reasons I think there is a hope of sorts. Uh, it's also why this probably isn't going to work, but what the heck, you got to try. Uh, to make a very, very long story very, very short, a combination of my interest in theoretical physics and Buddhism 
has led me to the firm conviction that there is more, that the, the earth is not just a bunch of dumb molecules bumping into one another. There is another realm, a higher realm, if you will, a uh, supreme being, albeit not like what people have encountered in Sunday school. And it is in awareness of that that I think the beginning part of this series title should be seen. Uh, again, we are, I believe, at the end. However, I think by keeping the faith literally and by telling the truth, which is the best one can do and really the only thing one can do, uh, it will certainly uh, lead to some very good karma. As I uh, have said periodically, I'm only in it for the karma. Again, I get no money from that 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, so uh, make of that what you will. In 1292 and 1293, uh, I did not explain a couple of the uh, titular elements of the uh, program. I spoke about the Northwoods virus, and the satanic presidency of Joe Biden. Uh, I believe the coronavirus, which, again, the pandemic is not over. There are new, milder variants that are very infective and people are getting sick. But the evidence suggests that uh, even a mild infection adversely affects the immune system permanently and also shortens the telomeres, the uh, strands that uh, are involved in cellular reproduction. Uh, again, there's so much going on that I just don't have the time to download all of the appropriate scientific information. But I think that the coronavirus is in keeping with a eugenics orientation. And hence, I'm going to present uh, some information about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. I also think that it is in the same vein as Operation Northwoods, which was a series of provocations, terrorist incidents that were going to be engineered in order to develop popular sentiment for war against Cuba. I believe that among the goals of the coronavirus or the COVID operation, to coin a term, was to generate sympathy for war against China, or at the very least, a decoupling of our economy from China's, and the demonization of China is, I think, the what, what makes the coronavirus the Northwoods virus. As I've indicated in that series, uh, the whole concept of a lab leak is scientifically obsolete. Uh, the state of the art now, once you've got a genome for a virus, particularly a mammalian virus, you can synthesize it from scratch or synthesize a tweaked version of it from scratch. And I believe that is exactly what has been done. But the Northwoods virus, the coronavirus, I believe, is the updated version of Operation Northwoods. I also think it is intended to reduce the Earth's population, hence the damage to the immune system and also the fact that young people are still getting the virus. And it has reduced the Earth's population. As far as the satanic presidency of Joe Biden, Behind a facade of politically correct identity politics, Joe Biden has pursued an absolutely warlike agenda. 
There is the firmest information linking Biden and his son to the Ukrainian biolabs and to Mebabiaba, which in turn is inextricably linked with the uh, genesis of the pandemic. And while, again, operating behind a facade of, of uh, identity politics and uh, certainly being more environmentally correct than Donald Trump, which <laughs> could be considered damning with faint praise. Biden is, in most important respects, continuing the politics of Donald Trump. The inflation we're getting is in part due to the $360 billion in tariffs that uh, Donald Trump uh, imposed on Chinese goods being imported into the U.S. Biden has basically kept those for the most part, and in some cases ramped them up. And in addition, war with Ukraine, and it was Biden who, as vice president, was the main director of U.S. relations with Ukraine. The installation of the OUNB Nazi successor organizations into power in Ukraine uh, was in no small measure Biden's doing. So behind this kindly old man who uh, is good for the environment and is uh, uh, adhering to identity politics, an absolutely annihilationist agenda is being implemented, and the sanctions against Russia have affected especially fuel and fertilizer, and everybody in the world uses uh, both directly and or indirectly. So the inflation that uh, the Fed is basically trying to control is not going to be controlled. However, uh, small people, little people who need to go to places like uh, Walmart or Target or what have you, big box stores, and buy those inexpensive goods that are manufactured in China, it has made life more difficult for them. And I'm one of those people, so uh, believe me, I know. Um, that is why I spoke about the satanic presidency of Joe Biden, because behind the facade is a, and absolutely have to be careful because uh, this is going to be on the air, and I would have to reach into the foulest backwaters of my vocabulary to properly describe what Joe Biden is doing. But when I talk about the end of the world, that's what he is bringing about, and uh, Trump did his part as well. Uh, again, that, that, so much of what is going on, I think, is intended to reduce the population eugenics style. And that the coronavirus, including the new milder versions, uh, are going to do just that. Even though they're milder, they, it appears from the scientific literature, they have all kinds of effects which have not been properly investigated or cataloged. They, continue, they are being investigated and cataloged up to a point. But it looks like even a mild infection adversely affects the immune system and it shortens the telomeres. In other words, if you've gotten a mild infection, you're not going to live as long and your chances of dying of cancer are greater. Again, I, one of the frustrating things for me personally and one of the reasons I don't think this series is likely to work is I just don't have time to present all of the relevant scientific information. I'm, I'm doing my level bloody best to keep up with it, but there's a limit to what one can do. In a one-hour weekly broadcast, or even doing two hours, or even supplementing it with Patreon, there's just a limit to what people can do. 
that having been said, uh, we're going to start by talking about the various things that I think portend the end, and then I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why I'm convinced there is a higher realm and a, quote, supreme being, unquote, and people should think about the karma that would be generated by sitting on your butts and letting the whole world die, as opposed to doing what you can to keeping life alive and seeing to it that there is a future. I'm going to begin by reading an article that is as important as any I have ever read. I think the author's work is uneven. This article is a home run. Some of his work is not nearly as good. The author is Johnny Vedmore, capital D-E-B-M-O-R-E, This is from the Unlimited Hangout blog of February 20th of 2021. The name of the article is Schwab Family Values, and it talks about Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum. You've heard about that at Davos. I think that is the primary driver of transnational corporate policy. And in that regard, I think we need to know who Klaus Schwab is, what he, what kind of a background he comes from, and what his milieu, there's that word, is. So, again, from the Unlimited Hangout blog of February 20th, 2021, Schwab Family Values by Johnny Vedmore. Is the real Klaus Schwab a kindly old uncle figure wishing to do good for humanity, or is he really the son of a Nazi collaborator who used slave labor and aided Nazi efforts to obtain the first atomic bomb? Johnny Vedmore investigates. On the morning of September 11, 2001, Klaus Schwab sat having breakfast in the Park East Synagogue in New York with Rabbi Arthur Schneier, former vice president for the World Jewish Congress and close associate of the Bronfman and Laver families. Together, the two men watched one of the most impactful events of the next 20 years unfold as planes struck the World Trade Center buildings. Now, two decades on, Klaus Schwab again sits in the front-row seat of yet another generation-defining moment in modern human history. Always seeming to have a front-row seat when tragedy approaches, Schwab's proximity to world-altering events likely owes to his being one of the most well-connected men on Earth. As the driving force behind the World Economic Forum, quote, the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation, unquote, Schwab has courted heads of state, leading business executives, and the elite of academic and scientific circles into the Davos fold for over 50 years. More recently, he also courted the ire of many due to his more recent role as the frontman of the Great Reset, a sweeping effort to remake civilization globally for the express benefit of the elite of the World Economic Forum and their allies. Schwab, during the forum's annual meeting in January 2021, stressed that the building of trust would be integral to the success of the Great Reset, signaling a subsequent expansion of the initiative's already massive public relations campaign. Though Schwab called for the building of trust through unspecified, quote, progress, unquote, trust is normally facilitated through transparency. Perhaps that is why so many have declined to trust Mr. Schwab and his motives 
as so little is known about the man's history and background prior to his founding of the World Economic Forum in the early 1970s. Like many prominent frontmen for elite-sponsored agendas, the online record of Schwab has been well sanitized, making it difficult to come across information on his early history as well as information on his family. Yet, having been born in Regensburg, Germany in 1938, many have speculated in recent months that Schwab's family may have had some ties to the Axis war efforts, ties that, if exposed, could threaten the reputation of the World Economic Forum and bring unwanted scrutiny to its professed missions and motives. In this unlimited hangout investigation, the past that Klaus Schwab had worked to hide is explored in detail, revealing the involvement of the Schwab family not only in the Nazi quest for an atomic bomb, but apartheid South Africa's illegal nuclear program. Especially revealing is a history of Klaus's father, Jürgen Schwab, who led the Nazi-supported German branch of a Swiss engineering firm into the war as a prominent military contractor. That company, Escher Weiss, of capital E-S-C-H-E-R hyphen capital W-Y-S-S, would use slave labor to produce machinery critical for the Nazi war effort, as well as the Nazis' effort to produce heavy water for its nuclear program. Years later, at the same company, a young Klaus Schwab served on the board of directors when the decision was made to furnish the racist apartheid regime of South Africa with the necessary equipment to further its quest to become a nuclear power. With the World Economic Forum now a prominent advocate for nuclear non-proliferation and clean, unquote, nuclear energy, Klaus Schwab's past makes him a poor spokesman for his professed agenda for the present and the future. Yet, digging even deeper into his activities, it becomes clear that Schwab's real role has been to, quote, shape global, regional, and industry agendas, unquote, of the present in order to ensure the continuity of larger, much older agendas that came into disrepute after World War II, not just nuclear technology, but also eugenics, Influence population control policies. Amen. And it is the latter that I think the COVID operation is directed against. Now, after talking about some of the background of Escher Weiss and the 19th century history of the uh, Schwab family, skipping down, by 1920, Escher Weiss found themselves embroiled in serious financial difficulties. The Treaty of Versailles had restricted the military and economic growth of Germany following the Great War, and the Swiss company found the downturn in neighboring national civil engineering projects too much to bear. The parent branch of Escher Weiss was located in Zurich and dated back to 1805 in the company which still benefited from a good reputation and a history lasting more than a century was deemed too important to lose. In December of 1920, a reorganization was carried out by wiping down the share capital from 11.5 to 4.015 billion French francs, and which was later increased again to 5.15 million Swiss francs. By the end of the financial year of 1931, Escherweiss was still losing money. Yet, 
the Plucky Company continued to deliver large-scale civil engineering contracts throughout the 1920s, as noted in the official correspondence written in 1924 from Wilhelm III, Prince of Urach, to the company Escherweiss, and to the asset manager of the House of Urach, accountant Julius Heller. This document discusses the general terms and conditions of the Association of German Water Turbine Manufacturers for the delivery of machines and other equipment for hydropower plants, unquote. This is also confirmed in a brochure on the, quote, conditions of the Association of German Water Turbine Manufacturers for the installation of turbines and machine parts within the German Reich, printed on March 20th, 1923, in an advertising brochure from Escher Weiss for a universal oil pressure regulator. After the Great Depression in the early 1930s had laid waste to the global economy, Escher Weiss announced, quote, as the catastrophic development of the economic situation in connection with the currency declines, the company, Escher Weiss, is temporarily unable to continue its current liabilities in various customer countries, unquote. The company also revealed that they would apply for a court deferral to the Swiss newspaper Neue Zucker Nachrichten, which reported on December 1st, 1931, that, quote, the company, Escher Weiss, has been granted a stay of bankruptcy until the end of March of 1932, and... Acting as curator in Switzerland, a trust company has been appointed. The article stated optimistically that, quote, there should be a prospect of continuing operations, unquote. In 1931, Escher Weiss employed around 1,300 non-contracted workers and 550 salaried employees. By the mid-1930s, Escher Weiss had again found itself in financial trouble. In order to rescue the company this time, a consortium was brought on board to save the ailing engineering firm. The consortium was partly formed by the Federal Bank of Switzerland, which was coincidentally founded by a Max Schwab, no relation to Klaus Schwab, and further restructuring took place. In 1938, it was announced that an engineer at the firm, Colonel Jakob uh, Schmidheimi, would become the new president of the board of directors at Escher Weiss. Soon after the outbreak of war in 1939, was quoted as saying, quote, The outbreak of war does not necessarily mean unemployment for the machine industry in a neutral country. On the contrary, unquote. Escher Weiss and its new management were apparently looking forward to profiting off the war, paving the way for their transformation into a major Nazi military contractor. Going to skip the next section is called a brief history of Jewish prosecution. Excuse me, a brief history of Jewish persecution in Ravensburg. That's Germany. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, historically Jews have not fared well in uh, that city. Uh, we're going to pick this up partway through uh, that section of the article. As early as March 13th, 1933, about three weeks before the nationwide boycott of all, the nationwide Nazi boycott of all Jewish shops in Germany, 
SA guards posted themselves in front of two of the five Jewish shops in Ravensburg and tried to prevent potential buyers from entering, putting up signs on one shop stating, quote, Volvert closed until Aryanization, unquote. Volvert would soon become Aryanized and would be the only Jewish-owned shop to survive the Nazi pogrom. The other owners of the four large Jewish department stores in Ravensburg, Knopf, Merker, Landauer, and Wollersteiner, were all forced to sell their properties to non-Jewish merchants between 1935 and 1938. By the way, those of you who've seen uh, the movie... Um, Cabaret based on uh, Christopher Isherwood's I Am a Camera and Goodbye Purple Wind. The Landauer family were uh, figured in that uh, basically factual account. Continuing, during this period, many of the Ravensburg Jews were able to flee abroad before the worst of the National Socialist persecution began. While at least eight died violently, it was reported that three Jewish citizens who lived in Ravensburg survived because of their, quote, Aryan, unquote, spouses. Some of the Jews who were arrested in Ravensburg during Kristallnacht were forced to march through the streets of Baden-Baden under SS guard supervision the following day and were later deported to Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Horrific Nazi crimes against humanity took place in Ravensburg. On January 1st, 1934, the law for the prevention of hereditary diseases, unquote, came into force in Nazi Germany, meaning people with diagnosed illnesses such as dementia, schizophrenia, epilepsy, hereditary deafness, and various other mental disorders could be legally forcibly sterilized. Pandemically, I think COVID is handling a lot of that in a lethal fashion, not sterilizing people, but getting rid of the excess humanity. Continuing. In the Ravensburg City Hospital, today called Heiliggeist Hospital, forced sterilizations were carried out beginning in April of 1934. By 1936, sterilization was the most performed medical procedure in the municipal hospital. In the pre-war years of the 1930s, leading up to the German annexation of Poland, Ravensburg's Escherweiss factory, now managed directly by Klaus Schwab's father, Jürgen Schwab, continued to be the biggest employer in Ravensburg. Not only was the factory a major employer in the town, but Hitler's own Nazi party awarded the Escherweiss Ravensburg branch the title of National Socialist Model Company, unquote, while Jürgen Schwab, Klaus Schwab's father, was at the helm. The Nazis were potentially wooing the Swiss company for cooperation in the coming war, and their advances were eventually reciprocated. Now the company in World War II. Ravensburg was an anomaly in wartime Germany. It was never targeted by any Allied airstrikes. The presence of the Red Cross and a rumored agreement with various companies, including Escher Weiss, saw the Allied forces publicly agree to not target the southern German town. It was not classified as a significant military target throughout the war, and for that reason, the town still maintains many of its original features. However, Much darker things were afoot in Ravensburg once the war began. 
Jürgen Schwab continued to manage the, quote, National Socialist Model Company, unquote, for Escher Weiss, and the Swiss company would aid the Nazi Wehrmacht to produce significant weapons of war as well as more basic armaments. The Escher Weiss company was a leader in large turbine technology for hydroelectric dams and power plants, but they also manufactured parts for German fighter planes. They were also intimately involved in much more sinister projects happening behind the scenes, which, if completed, could have changed the outcome of World War II. Western military intelligence was already aware of Escherweiss's complicity and collaboration with the Nazis. There are records available from Western military intelligence at the pond, specifically Record Group 226-RG226, from the data compiled by the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, which shows the Allied forces were aware of some of the Escherweiss's business dealings with the Nazis. Within RG226, there are three specific mentions of Escherweiss, including file number 47178, which reads, Escher Weiss of Switzerland is working on a large order for Germany, but one more time, file order number 47178, which reads, Escher Weiss of, of Switzerland is working on a large order for Germany. Flamethrowers are dispatched from Switzerland under the name Brimstoff dated September 1944. File number 41589 showed that the Swiss were allowing German exports to be stored in their country, a supposedly neutral nation during World War II. The entry reads, Business relations between Empresa Nacional Calvo Sotelo, or Encaso, Escherweiss, and the mineral Sobau Gesellschaft, uh, July 1944, see also L42627 report on collaboration between the Spanish Empresa Nacional Calvo Sotelo and the German Rhine Methyl Borsig on German exports stored in Switzerland, August 1st, 1944. File number 72644 claimed that, quote, Hungary's bauxite was formally sent to Germany and Switzerland for refining. Then a government syndicate built an, an, an aluminum plant at Dumalmas on the borders of Hungary. Electric power was provided. By the way, of the uh, forging of aluminum uses tremendous uh, amounts of electricity. So electric power was provided. Hungary contributed coal mines, and equipment was ordered from the Swiss firm Escher Weiss. Production began in 1941. Yet Escher Weiss were leaders in one blossoming field in particular, the creation of new turbine technology. The company had engineered a 14,500-horsepower turbine for the Norsk Hydro Industrial Facility's strategically important hydroelectric plant at Vemork, capital V-E-M-O-R-K, near Rukan in Norway. That's R-J-U-K-A-N. The Norsk Hydro Plant Partly powered by Escher Weiss, was the only industrial plant under Nazi control capable of producing heavy water, an ingredient essential for making plutonium from the Nazi atomic bomb program. 
The Germans had put all possible resources behind the production of heavy water, but the Allied forces were aware of the potentially game-changing tech advances by the increasingly desperate Nazis. During 1942 and 1943, the hydro plant was the target of partially successful British commando and Norwegian resistance raids, although heavy water production continued. The Allied forces would drop more than 400 bombs on the plant, which barely affected the operations at the the sprawling facility. In 1944, German ships attempted to transport heavy water back to Germany, but the Norwegian resistance were able to sink the ship carrying the payload. With help from Escher Weiss, the Nazis were almost able to change the tide of war and bring about an Axis victory. Back in the Escherweiss factory in Ravensburg, Jürgen Schwab, Schwab's father, had been busy putting forced laborers to work at his novel Nazi company. During the years of World War II, nearly 3,600 forced laborers worked in Ravensburg, including at Escherweiss. According to the city archivist in Ravensburg, Andrea Schnuber, the Escherweiss machine factory in Ravensburg employed 198 and 200, excuse me, beginning again. According to the city archivist in Ravensburg, Andrea Schnuber, the Escherweiss machine factory in Ravensburg employed between 198 and 203 civil workers and POWs during the war. Karl Schweitzer, a local Lindau historian, states that Escherweiss maintained a small special camp for forced laborers on the factory premises. The use of masses of forced laborers in Ravensburg made it necessary to set up one of the largest recorded Nazi forced labor camps in the workshop of a former carpenters at Siegelstrasse 16. At one time, the camp in question accommodated 125 French prisoners of war who were later redistributed to other camps in 1942. The French workers were replaced by 150 Russian prisoners of war who, it was rumored, were treated the worst out of all the POWs. One such prisoner was Zima Yakusheva, whose work card and workbook are held by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. These documents identify her as non-Jewish forced laborer assigned to Ravensburg, Germany between 1943 and 1944. Jürgen Schwab would dutifully maintain the status quo during the war years. After all, with the young Klaus Martin Schwab having been born in 1938 and his brother Urs Weimer Schwab born a few years later, Jürgen would have wanted to keep his children out of harm's way. Klaus Martin Schwab, international man of mystery. This is about uh, the head of Davos. Born on March 30th, 1938, in Ravensburg, Germany, Klaus Schwab was the eldest child in a normal nuclear family. <laughs> There's no, no pun there with nuclear. It is a, a funny reference, but no, that means small, not, not radioactive here. Continuing. Between 1945 and 1947, Klaus attended primary school in Au, Germany, was capital AU. Klaus Schwab recalls in a 2006 interview with the Irish Times that, quote, 
After the war, I chaired the Franco-German Regional Youth Association. My heroes were Adenauer, de Gasperi, and de Gaulle, unquote. Klaus Schwab and his younger brother, Urs Weimer, Urs Weimer, R-E-I-M-E-R, Schwab, were both to follow in the footsteps of their grandfather, Gottfried, and their father, Eugen, and would both initially train as machine engineers. Klaus's father had told the young Schwab that if he wanted to make an impact on the world, then he should train as a machine engineer. This would only be the beginning of Schwab's university credentials. Klaus would begin studying the plethora of degrees at Spohn Gymnasium, or Spohn, S-P-O-H-N, Gymnasium, Ravensburg between 1949 and 1957, eventually graduating from the uh, Humanistisches Gymnasium in Uh One more time. Some of these uh, German names are not easy. I'm a cold weed. Klaus would begin studying his plethora of degrees at Spohn Gymnasium Ravensburg between 1949 and 1957, eventually graduating from the Humanistische Gymnasium in Ravensburg. Okay, in the written description for the show, that, will, that word will be reproduced in all of its glory. Continuing. Between 1958 and 1962, Klaus began working with various engineering companies, and in 1962, Klaus completed his mechanical engineering studies at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich with an engineering diploma. The following year, he also completed an economics course at the University of Freiburg, Switzerland. From 1963 until 1966, Klaus worked as an assistant to the Director General of the German Machine Building Association, VDMA, Frankfurt. In 1965, Klaus was also working on his doctorate from the ETH Zurich, writing his dissertation on, quote, the longer-term export credit as a business problem in mechanical engineering, unquote. Then, in 1966, he received his doctorate in engineering from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology at Zurich. At this time, Klaus's father, Jürgen Schwab, was swimming in bigger circles than he had previously swam. After being a well-known personality in Ravensburg as the managing director of the Escherweiss factory from before the war, Jürgen would eventually be elected as president of the Ravensburg Chamber of Commerce. In 1966, during the founding of the German Committee for Spelugen Railway Tunnel, Jürgen Schwab defined the founding of the German Committee as a project, quote, that creates a better and faster connection for a larger, for large circles in a, one more time. In 1966, during the founding of the German Committee for Spugen Railway Tunnel, Jürgen Schwab, Klaus's father, defined the founding of the German Committee as a project, quote, that creates a better and faster connection for large circles in our increasingly converging Europe, and thus offers new opportunities for cultural, economic, and social development, unquote. In 1967, Klaus Schwab 
gained a doctorate in economics from the University of Freiburg, Switzerland, as well as Master of Public Administration qualification from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard in the United States. Very important connection here. While at Harvard, Schwab was taught by Henry Kissinger, who he would later say were among the top three or four figures who had most influenced his thinking over the course of his entire life. He and Kissinger are very close. And one of the things we spoke about in For the Record 731 was the fact that Henry Kissinger was heavily involved with the Nazi intelligence apparatus that was operating in the U.S. Uh, the heroic John Loftus from the Office of Special Investigations had authored The Ballora Secret, published by Alfred Knopf in 1982 in hardcover. Uh, Switzerland, uh, Switzerland, <laughs> uh, Kissinger <laughs> had threatened to sue if some of the information about his involvement with Nazis came out. Uh, John Loftus told him basically to go pound sand, and ultimately when uh, Twine Day, a small publisher up in the Pacific Northwest, published the un- edited version of John Loftus's Polara Secret under the uh, title of America's Nazi Secret. All of the information about Kissinger's networking with this Nazi intelligence milieu was uh, brought to light. And I talk about that in For the Record 7, 31. So again, Henry Kissinger, one of the top influences on Klaus Schwab, uh, and that is very important. Continuing. In the previously mentioned Irish Times article of 2006, Klaus talked about that period as being very important to the formation of the present ideological thinking, stating, quote, Years later, when I came back from the U.S. after my studies at Harvard, there were two events that had a decisive triggering event on me. The first was a book by Jean-Jacques Servan-Schreiber, The American Challenge, which said Europe would lose out against the U.S., because of Europe's inferior management methods. The other event was, and this is relevant to Ireland, the Europe of the six became the Europe of the nine, unquote. These two events would help shape Klaus Schwab into a man who wanted to change the way people went about their business. That same year, Klaus's younger brother, Urs Weimer Schwab, graduated from ETH Zurich as a mechanical engineer, and Klaus Schwab went to work for his father's old company, Escher Weiss, soon to become Sutzer Escher Weiss AG Zurich, as assistant to the chairman to aid in the reorganization of the merging companies. This leads us towards Klaus's nuclear connections. Sutzer, a Swiss company that's S-U-L-Z-E-R, whose origins date back to 1834, had first risen to prominence after starting to build compressors in, in 1906. By 1914, the family-run firm had become part of, quote, three joint stock companies, unquote, one of which was the official holding company. In the 1930s, Sulzer's profits would suffer during the Great Depression, and, like many businesses at the time, faced disruption and industrial actions from their workers. 
World War II may not have affected Switzerland as much as her neighbors, but the economic boom that was to follow led to Switzerland going in power and market dominance. Parenthetically, I would add that Swiss finance and industry are inextricably linked with that of Germany and Nazi Germany. Uh, we've spoken about that at great length. Continuing. By the way, we spoke about that in uh, specifically for the record 1135 and 1136. Continuing. In 1966, just before the arrival of Klaus Schwab at Escher Weiss, the Swiss turbine manufacturers signed a cooperation agreement with the Sulzer brothers in Winterthur. Sulzer and Escher Weiss would begin to merge in 1966 when Sulzer purchased 53% of the company's shares. Escher Weiss would officially become Sulzer Escher Weiss AG in 1969 when the last of the shares were acquired by the Sulzer brothers. Once the merger started, Escher Weiss would begin to be restructured and two of the existing board members would be the first to find their service to Escher Weiss coming to an end. Dr. H. Schindler and W. Stoffel would resign from the board of directors, now headed by George Sulzer and Alfred Schaffner, S-C-H-A-F-F-N-E-R. Dr. Schindler had been a member of the Escherweiss board of directors for 28 years and had worked alongside Jürgen Schwab throughout much of his service. Peter Schmidheimi would later take over as chairman of the board of directors of Escherweiss, continuing the Schmidheimi family rule over the company's executives. During the restructuring process, it was decided that Escherweiss and Sulzer would concentrate on separate areas of machine engineering with the Escherweiss factories, primarily working on hydraulic plant construction, including turbines, storage pumps, reversing machines, closing devices, and pipelines, as well as steam turbines, turbo compressors, evaporation systems, centrifuges, and machines for the paper and pulp industry. Sulzer would concentrate on the refrigeration industry as well as steam boiler construction and gas turbines. On January 1st, 1968, the freshly reorganized Sulzer Escherweiss AG was rolled out publicly and the company had become streamlined, a move deemed necessary because of several large acquisitions. These acquisitions included a close collaboration with Brown Bavari, a group of Swiss electric engineering companies who had also worked for the Nazis, supplying the Germans with some of their U-boat technology used during World War II. Brown Bavari was also described as, quote, defense-related electrical contractors, unquote, and would find the conditions of the Cold War arms race to be beneficial to their business. The merger and reorganization of these Swiss mechanical engineering giants saw their collaboration pay off in unique ways. During the 1968 Winter Olympics in Grenoble, Sulzer and Escherweiss used eight refrigeration compressors to create tons of artificial ice. In 1969, the firms combined to keep one more time. In 1969, the two firms combined to help in the building of a new passenger ship named Hamburg, unquote, the first ship in the world to be fully air-conditioned thanks to the Sulzer-Escher-Weiss combination. 
1967, Klaus Schwab officially burst onto the scene of the Swiss business community and took a lead in the merger between Sulzer and Escher Weiss, as well as forming profitable alliances with Brown Bavari and others. In December of 1967, Klaus would speak at a Zurich event to the top Swiss, Swiss machine engineering organizations. The Employers Association of Swiss Machine and Metal Manufacturers and the Association of Swiss Machine Manufacturers. In his talk, he would correctly predict the importance of incorporating computers in the modern Swiss machine engineering, state, state, stating that, quote, In 1971, products that are not even on the market today are likely to account for up to a quarter of sales. This requires companies to systematically research possible developments and identify departments that are entrusted with such tasks. Of course, everyone has to make use of the latest technological advances, and the computer is one of them. The many small and medium-sized companies in our machine industry take the path of cooperation or use the services of special data processing service providers, unquote. Computers and data were obviously seen as important to the future, according to Schwab, and this was further projected in the reorganization of Sutra Escher Weiss during their merger. Sutra's modern website reflects this trustworthy, this noteworthy change in direction, stating that in 1968, quote, material technology activities are intensified by Sutra and form the basis for medical technology products. The fundamental change from a machine-building company to a technology corporation start to become apparent, unquote. Klaus Schwab was hoping to turn Sulzer Escherweiss into something more than just a machine-building giant. He was transforming them into a technology corporation, driving at high speed into a high-tech future. It should also be noted that Sulzer Escherweiss changed another focus of their business to help them, quote, form the basis for medical technology products, unquote, an area not previously mentioned as a target industry for Sulzer and or Escher Weiss. But the technological advancement wasn't the only upgrade Klaus Schwab wanted to introduce at Sulzer Escher Weiss. He also wanted to change how the company thought about their business managerial style. Schwab and his close associates were pushing an entirely new business philosophy which would allow, quote, all employees to accept the imperatives of motivation and to ensure at home a sense of flexibility and maneuverability. It is here in the late 1960s where we see Klaus begin to emerge as a more public figure. At this time, the Sulzer Escherweiss Company also became more interested in engaging with the press than ever before. In January of 1969, the Swiss giants set up a public advisory session entitled, quote, The Press Day of the Machine Industry, unquote, which mainly concerned questions on company management. During the event, Schwab would state that companies using authoritarian styles of business management are, quote, unable to fully activate the human capital, unquote, an argument he would use on many separate occasions during the late 1960s. The next is called Plutonium 
and Pretoria. Extra Vice were pioneers in some of the most important tech and power generation. As the U.S. Department of Energy points out in their paper on supercritical CO2 Brayton cycle development, a device used in hydro and nuclear power plants, quote, Escher Weiss was the first company known to develop the turbo machinery for CBC systems starting in 1939, unquote. Going on to state that 24 systems were built, quote, with Escher Weiss designing the power conversion cycles and building the turbo machinery for all but three. By 1966, just before the entrance of Schwab into Escherweiss and the start of the Sulzer merger, the Escherweiss helium, com- helium compressor was designed for the LeFleur Corporation and continued the evolution of the Brayton cycle development. This technology was still of importance to the arms industry by 1986, with nuclear-powered drones being equipped with a helium-cooled Brayton cycle nuclear reactor. Extra Vice had been involved with manufacturing and installing nuclear technology at least as early as 1962, as shown by this patent for a, quote, heat exchange arrangement for a nuclear power plant, unquote, and this patent, again, there are links here, from 1966 for a, quote, nuclear reactor gas turbine plant with emergency cooling, unquote. After Schwab left Sulzer-Escherweiss, Sulzer would also help to develop special turbo compressors for uranium enrichment to yield reactor fuels. When Klaus Schwab joined Sulzer-Escherweiss in 1967 and started the reorganization of the company to be a technology corporation, the involvement of Sulzer-Escherweiss in the darker aspects of the global nuclear arms race became immediately more pronounced. Before Klaus became involved, Escher Weiss had often concentrated on helping design and build parts for civilian uses of nuclear technology, e.g. nuclear power generation. Yet, with the arrival of the eager Mr. Schwab, also came the company's participation in the illegal proliferation of nuclear weapons technology. By 1969, the incorporation of Escherweiss into Sulzer was fully completed and they would be rebranded into Sulzer AG, dropping the historic name Escherweiss from their name. It was eventually revealed thanks to a review and report carried out by the Swiss authorities and a man named Peter Hug, HUV, that Sulzer Escherweiss began secretly procuring and building parts for nuclear weapons during the 1960s. The company, while Schwab was on the board, also began playing a critical role in the development of South Africa's illegal nuclear weapons program during the darkest years of the apartheid regime. Klaus Schwab was a leading figure in the founding of a company culture which helped Pretoria build six nuclear weapons and partially assemble a seventh. One more time. It's the last paragraph because it's key. It was eventually revealed, thanks to a review and report carried out by the Swiss authorities and a man named Peter Hug, that Sulzer Escherweiss began secretly procuring and building key parts for nuclear weapons during the 1960s. The company, while Schwab was on the board, 
also began p- playing a critical role in the development of South Africa's illegal nuclear weapons program during the darkest years of the apartheid regime. Klaus Schwab was a leading figure in the founding of a company culture which helped Pretoria build six nuclear weapons and partially assemble a seventh. In the report, Peter Hoog outlined how Sulzer Escherweiss AG, referred to post-merger as just Sulzer AG, had supplied vital components to the South Africa, to the South African government and found evidence of Germany's leading role in supporting the racist regime, also revealing that the Swiss government, quote, was aware of illegal deals, but, quote, tolerated them in silence, unquote, while supporting some of them actively or criticizing them only half-heartedly, unquote. Hoog's report was eventually finalized in the work entitled, quote, Switzerland and South Africa, 1948 to 1994, final report of the NFP 42 Plus, commissioned by the Swiss Federal Council, which was compiled and written by George Kreis, K-O-E-I-S, and published in 2007. By 1967, South Africa had constructed a reactor as part of a plan to produce plutonium, the Safari 2 located at Pemindaba. Safari 2 was part of a project to develop a nuclear moderated Safari 2 was part of a project to develop a reactor moderated by heavy water which would be fueled by natural uranium and cooled using sodium. This link to developing heavy water for the creation of uranium, the same technology which had been utilized by the Nazis, also with the help of Escher Weiss, may explain why South Africans initially got Escher Weiss involved. But by 1969, South Africa abandoned the heavy water reactor project at Pelindaba because it was draining resources from the uranium enrichment program that had first begun in 1967. And we'll continue with a discussion of this. By the way, one of the things to keep in mind is that the father of Peter Peel, who was... uh, uh, a German, that is, his father was German. Peter Peel, also of German nationality. He uh, got his first job in the engineering field, helping with uh, the mining of uranium, also for the apartheid South Africa's atomic bomb. So here we have Klaus Schwab working the same Nazi-linked Swiss firm, working in the same Nazi-linked Swiss firm as his father, and ultimately helping to uh, channel technology to the apartheid South Africa nuclear weapons program. And uh, Peter Peel's father, Peter Peel, one of the top people behind Donald Trump, Peter Peel's father is also working on uh, at a uh, program that was mining uranium for the South African nuclear program. We'll talk about that in our next program. That, by the way, from the book The Contrarian by Max Chapkin. However, this is all we have time for. Remember, uh, if uh, podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, WFMU is podcasting the broadcast. Do check the website for the comments by the brilliant Parafractal and also the 32 gigabyte flash drive of all of my life's work and a small library of old uh, anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files are available on that flash drive. I get no money from that. That flash drive will be dramatically updated after this series is concluded. 
This concludes for the record program number 1294, The End and the Beginning, Part 1. This is being recorded on March 31st of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>